time ago now, I was talking to a guy, a buddy of mine that had just started coming to this church. And I said, hey, you know, Father's Day in a couple weeks, you know, are you gonna, are you gonna be at Father's Day service? I, I don't go to church on Father's Day. I said, I don't go to church on Father's Day. What, what are you talking about? He said, well, just the church I grew up in and the churches that I attend uh, on Mother's Day, it's like rah, rah, go mom. And uh, on Father's Day, it's like you're a no good so-and-so, right, sort of thing. And uh, at first I felt really defensive of like the big C church. And the more I thought about it, dude had a point, right? That for a long time, culture uh, and the church kind of uh, emulated that idea uh, about what a poor job uh, dads do. And I think as you watch media, our culture is coming back around on this issue and you're seeing uh, the role of dad more celebrated than it used to be, and I think that's a good thing. And I think you're seeing it in church as well, that dads are being uh, uplifted and celebrated for uh, the ways that they set an example, for the way that they're teaching and training values in their family, for the commitment you have to your kids and to your marriage. Um, those are all good things. And so we, do, we just want to say thank you today. And uh, like Scott said, dads, root beer, and lobby for everybody. Uh, we all want to honor uh, dads. I don't feel like we got that point across with the cookies at Mother's Day as, as much, that those were for everybody too. I hate to break it to you now, but those were for everybody. Um, I could have had a cookie, you could have had a cookie, all right? So um, we want the root beer, we bought enough for everybody and just stay after for a few minutes, have a root beer, uh, some chips, and let's just celebrate the idea of fatherhood and um, men that we desperately need and are grateful for that are leaning into their families, leaning into Jesus, uh, and trying to train uh, their children and their families in the way they should go. So we're grateful for you. Let's pray. Right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for his grace. And uh, as we uh, kind of lean into this idea of how we're going to deal uh, with our guilt uh, before you, um, and maybe that internalized guilt, which very quickly becomes shame, um, we want to make sure we do that in the right way. And so we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for what you teach on this subject. Um, help us to do it well, Lord, because I've seen uh, in, in a lot of examples what shame can do to a person. And uh, I don't want that for anybody listening. I, I don't want shame to, to have that impact on their life, and, and there's no need for it to. Um, you give us a way to deal with it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. There's a old preacher joke that I am confident that you've heard uh, because I've shared it before, but I love it so much about a burglar uh, that had been kind of casing this house for a good long time. And finally, he saw that the family was leaving on an extended trip. And he said, this is the perfect time to kind of rob this family. And so he broke into the house. He had his flashlight and he's kind of looking around to get his bearings in the house. And he hears this voice say, kind of an older woman voice, I see you and Jesus sees you and you should be ashamed. He's like, who, who was that voice? And he's looking around, doesn't see anybody, and uh, kind of goes a few steps further and looking around, and he hears that same kind of older woman voice, I see you, and Jesus sees you, and you should be ashamed. And he's now mad. He's kind of yelling back at the voice, so I'm armed, you know, watch out, all that sort of thing. And he's looking around, and finally his light falls on a parrot in a cage across the room. And uh, the light falls on the parrot, and the parrot says, shame on you. I see you, and Jesus sees you. And the thief kind of laughs at himself for kind of being scared at all. And uh, he kind of takes the flashlight and goes to the other side of the room. And on the other side of the room, he sees this huge, slobbering, 
angry Doberman pincher just standing in the corner. And all of a sudden, the parrot in the cage goes, sick him, Jesus, sick. Right? Um, so, and I think, you know, I love that joke so much because uh, it's funny, but I also, uh, you know, I think it's worth exploring that. I think this is sometimes the way that we view Jesus. Right? That he's kind of that Doberman that's sitting in the corner ready to sick us. And there's a theological reason for why we feel this way. And I think it's because we know our sin. We're all aptly aware of our sinfulness. We know our sin and we know his holiness. And we don't know how to marry these two ideas together. And we don't know how to deal with our sin. So we have this view of Jesus that he's the Doberman in the corner ready to you know, pull out a good smoting, right? Um, and, and that's kind of the way we view him. And really Christianity at its core, we're talking about this is our faith. Christianity, Christianity teaches us how to deal with our guilt and how to deal with our shame. Here's how Tim Keller wrote it, the series of tweets that I've been talking to you about that led to this series. He says, Christianity offers a resolution to guilt, shame, and self-laceration that avoids both minimizing your own failures and allowing other people to ultimately define you. And I think he raises an excellent question here. What does the faith teach about this issue? Because as this sermon unfolds, what, the argument I want to make to you, and we're going to spend some more time on this later, is that I think a lot of what we see in our culture, a lot of what we observe in our culture, is a misguided attempt by our culture of dealing with guilt and dealing with shame. And it can have some pretty dire consequences. So Tim Keller is a really great, smart theologian and pastor, but really we want to see what God's word says about this. And so here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. What shall we conclude then? And this is in Romans. Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made uh, the charge that Jews and Gentiles are all alike under the power of sin. So Right? Jews and Gentiles, they're exactly alike on this issue. Right? The cultures all have different points of view, different histories, but on this, we're all the same. We're all under the power of sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Happy Father's Day, right? Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable before God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, it is through the law that we become conscious, conscious of sin. All right? So we're going to talk about this more in 15 minutes or so, but I want you to see that Paul's solution to sin, Paul's solution to guilt, and Paul's solution to shame is not eliminating a category called sin. As a matter of fact, when you read this text, Paul kind of leans into the sinfulness of man. And as we kind of study this text, what you see is Paul develops what I would call these categories of common sin. 
So in other words, Paul's talking to a large group of people, and he's kind of categorizing different types of sin that all nations, all people, everybody kind of struggles with. And, And you will see as we kind of look at these categories, it looks different in each culture, but every culture in human history, every person in human history has struggled with these different categories of sin. Category number one are worship related sins. Paul says that these are sins that happen when we lose our respect for God, when we lose our awe of God, and we lose our fear of God. And instead of seeking God and what he wants, we end up kind of seeking what we want. Paul will say in another text that instead of worshiping the creator uh, through our sinfulness, we end up worshiping the created thing. We end up worshiping the created thing. This is a worship-related sin. So greed or lack of generosity is a worship-related sin. Pride, which is the worship of self, is a worship-related sin. Sex can be a worship-related sin, where this thing other than God becomes the object of my worship, and I kind of bow to it, follow it, obey it. It becomes the center of my universe. The other thing he says is speech-related sins. He talks about lying, which is a good and obvious example, but did you notice he also talks about bitterness, which I think is less obvious. I think about Israel when they were first freed from their slavery. They're in the desert, and uh, it's been hot and difficult, uh, and they're, they're in the middle of the desert. We know what hot's like right here uh, the last few days. Yesterday's been very promising, but outside of that, it's been hot, right? And they're in the desert, and it's hard, and they become bitter toward God, this text says, and they begin to complain. They don't see the grace of being free they begin to wonder if it would be better for them to be back in slavery. At least they were fed three squares there. And we don't often think of bitterness as a sin issue, but the Bible describes it that way because bitterness at its core is a failure to celebrate and see God's grace, and it chooses to focus on what's wrong. So he says speech-related sins and bitterness out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? How many of you know when somebody struggles with bitterness, about three minutes into the conversation you can tell? Right? About three minutes into the conversation, you can tell. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So speech-related sins. And then uh, the other common sin behavior is the way of division. And he's talking about here the things that we do when we disagree with, with each other. When we refuse to strive toward peace. These are sins that can be committed when we're in the middle of a conflict with someone. We get angry and perhaps turn to violence. But it can be even sins committed in the middle of a political division. Not that our culture knows anything about this, but... Um, that disagreeing is not a sin. Name-calling is, denigrating is, seeking to destroy someone is. These are the sins of division. And Paul will sometimes, like when you read 1 Corinthians, Paul will go after like an individual sin in an individual's life, right? So uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, right, a man's caught in the act of adultery, uh, Uh, with his father's wife, and Paul all but names that person. He calls it out. Here, this is much more generic and common to every person, every culture, every nation. This text in Romans is an all play. These are the sins that the human heart is drawn to. And later on, Paul will say in the text I'm going to read in about five minutes, he'll say, listen, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the question. What do you do with that? I think our culture has adopted some pretty unhealthy coping mechanisms to deal with our guilt and to deal with, at times, our shame. And I think there are three. 
All right, first of all, I think our culture seeks to redefine sin. Our culture actually takes a step further and it will call sin righteousness. That this behavior that God says is harmful, hurtful, and sinful, we're going to seek to say it isn't sinful at a minimum and it's actually righteous at a maximum. All right, so you're watching TV. Right? And you'll see these things portrayed as funny. Promiscuity at a younger and younger age is seen as good. Pornography is something to be celebrated as a rite of passage. And this is our culture's attempt at dealing with our guilt and dealing with our shame and saying, no, 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 that's not sinful. God's wrong about that. That's not sinful. It's actually good and righteous. Right? So they redefine sin. They also redefine righteousness. Our culture, I don't know if you've noticed this, our culture is obsessed with being right. We will argue to the mat and back to prove that we are right, that we are on the right side of the issue. You can go to social media later today or maybe tomorrow after Father's Day and see it for yourself. We are all arguing for our own righteousness. Because if I can prove I'm right to you, then maybe someday I have a shot at proving that I'm right before God. And you and I know how silly that sounds, right? Because God is holy and much more holy and righteous than any of us are. So yeah, you might be able to prove to me that you're righteous, but proving it to God is a different story. But I really believe this is what is going on under the surface. We see our sin, we see his holiness, and what do we do with that? I've got to prove that I'm righteous. And the last thing is they will just live with guilt and shame. I think this is where most people are at in our culture, that this is where they're destined to live. I did the crime, so I'll do the... And we're walking around with this sense of guilt, this sense of shame, and we don't see how it's affecting our worship and our relationship with God and our relationship with others and our day-to-day decision-making. And we just think, man, I did the sin. I guess I just have to live in this. And Paul wants to remind us that it doesn't need to be this way. Here's what he writes as he goes on. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to underline this thing right to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, right? So just like there is no difference between Jew and Gentile in terms of sinfulness, there's also no difference here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely. So you're equally sinful, but you are equal also in your ability to be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so uh, as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Amen. Right? He talks about this righteousness that comes through faith that is apart from the law. And this faith in Jesus results in several things. When you express your faith in Jesus, several things happen. One is it results in redemption. 
that Jesus pays for our sins. That's all the word redemption means. He pay, the wages of sin is death, and he pays for our sin. He justifies us. He forgives our sins. So the word justification is now God can see us just as if we'd never sinned. And he atones us. He connects us back to God and makes us one with him. This happens by grace through faith. I have to drill down on this for just for a minute because it's so important to what we're going to talk about here in a minute. This doesn't happen because you obeyed perfectly. Spoiler alert, you haven't. This doesn't happen because you got it right and your neighbor got it wrong. This doesn't happen because you are a great person. This doesn't happen because in some cosmic way, Jesus needs you. This happens by grace, through faith. It is the gift of God. And when you understand this, it results in a couple different things on the screen for you. Number one thing, what happens is, so we don't have to justify or dismiss our sin. Kids learn this at a very early age. Have you ever uh, been in a situation where you've baked like a dozen cookies and you come into the kitchen and your four-year-old or your three-year-old is there and there's 11 cookies on the sheet and your three-year-old has chocolate on their fingers and around their mouth and you say, hey, did you eat one of those cookies? And mouthful of cookie, they'll say, no. (laughs) Why did they do that? They don't want to carry the burden of guilt. It feels too heavy. And they don't want to be punished. It feels too scary. And how many of you know that us as adults are not that different from that kid? We don't know what to do with our sin. So we redefine it. We reorder it. We dismiss it altogether. We define ourselves as righteous because the sin feels too heavy. The guilt feels too heavy. The the element of punishment feels too scary. And Jesus from the cross, Romans says here, Jesus from the cross says, bring it to me and I'll carry it. This is called the faith. And here's what it does. It allows us to see our sin more clearly, which is interesting because a lot of people think that a grace message or a faith message will cause us to see our sin less. That's not true. I mean, it can happen with with a distorted view of grace, but grace properly understood frees us to be able to see our sin more clearly. And when we see it, we give it to Jesus on the cross where we receive grace. And when we see it, we uh, we can be powered by the Holy Spirit to overcome it. I am absolutely convinced that people are enslaved and trapped in generational sin because generation after generation after generation refuses to see it. And because they refuse to see it, they refuse to give it to Jesus. And because they refuse to give it to Jesus, they cannot overcome it, and they are trapped. There's no need for it. There's no need for it. The gospel doesn't dismiss our sin. The gospel helps us to see it clearly so that we can give it to our Savior because he loves us and we can be empowered by his Holy Spirit to overcome it. So the gospel is not like God's like, I didn't see that, I didn't see that, I didn't see that. The gospel is God saying, I see it and I will send my son to pay for it. So we don't have to justify or dismiss our sin. We don't have to make ourselves the standard of righteousness. 
Understanding the gospel, you notice that Paul said this again and again. We don't have to boast in our righteousness. We can boast in Jesus because the whole game is about him. He's the one that lived the perfect life, not me. He sacrificed for my sin. I didn't sacrifice myself. He rose from the dead. And our righteousness is not found in obedience to the law. It's not found through me. It's found through faith in him. So we boast in him. And I think our culture, I've, you know, you don't have to go to Bible college to know this, but we've lost our connection to the gospel and to Jesus. And because of that, two things start to happen in a culture that this happens in. One is confusion. Uh, the confusion over who should be the standard of righteousness. Is it the politician? Insert laugh here. <laughs> is it the celebrity? Insert laugh here. Is it me? Is it you? We get confused about who should be the standard, who should be the one that we hold up. And then the second thing it leads to is anger. Let me tell you why you're not the standard for righteousness. So as soon as we feel anyone's kind of sniffing at that, politician, celebrity, friend, whoever, anytime we feel that someone is sniffing that they're the standard, it's like, let me in three points propose to you why you're not. You did this, that, and the other thing. In the gospel, I understand my sin, and I understand who saved me from it. Why on earth would I boast in me? In the gospel, we boast in the righteousness of Christ. And he becomes our standard. So it offers clarity that who is the standard on sexuality? Who is the standard on generosity? Who is the standard on all of this stuff? We can come up with this answer. I'm just following Jesus. That's all I'm doing. It offers clarity and it dissipates anger. Because I'm not better than you. And you're not better than me. We are all sinners in need of a savior. So none of us becomes the standard. The standard becomes Christ. And most of all, it allows me and it allows you to walk in honesty. I, it is hard for me to share how deeply I want this for our church. That we would just walk in honesty. That I don't have to put on airs that I'm better than I am, that I'm more righteous than I am, that I'm more holy than I am. I don't have to do that. I can be honest and authentic and praise Jesus along with you for his grace. Last thing, we don't have to walk in guilt or shame. I think that shame has a greater impact on us than we could ever realize. Shame is what causes us to hide from God See it in the very first story in the Bible. Adam and Eve break God's command and they eat from the forbidden fruit. And when they were in direct community with God, all of a sudden they're hiding from him. Shame will cause us to hide from God. This is some of your stories. That's like, man, I hadn't been to church in 20 years, 30 years. And when you look back on it, you're like, I was ashamed. And I was guilty. And so I hid. Shame will cause us to hide from each other. When I've sinned against another person, many times the relationship gets strained and it gets tough. And so I just start avoiding them and hiding from them. And in Jesus, I realize that repentance and sorrow and forgiveness is my next step, not hiding. 
Playing hide and seek with kids is hilarious. It's one of my favorite things to do. They eventually get the hang of it, but at the beginning, they're not very good at it. All right? And so I'll hide, play hide and seek in our house with my four-year-old. She'll say, all right, daddy, you know, count to 10 and you know, I'll get to 10. All right, ready or not, here I come. I'm hiding in the coat closet. <laughs> this is going to be a pretty easy game if this is what we're going to do, right? The gospel invites us out of our hiding. There's no reason to hide. We're invited to honesty and authenticity. We're invited to repentance when we mess up. And we are invited to grace when others mess up. So here's what shame will do. It will lead, shame will lead you to self-hatred. It will cause us to not, well, you know, here's what shame does. It doesn't just cause us to be aware of our sin. It causes us to wear our sin as our primary identity. That's what shame does. Is that it's not just being aware, right? I think guilt is more being aware. What shame does is says, what shame says to you is this is who you are. That I'm just a fill in the blank. And the gospel says, no, that's not your identity. That's what you did. And you give it to Jesus and be forgiven of it. That's not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. You are forgiven. And so the gospel, it invites us out of our hiding to our God. That no longer do we have to run away from him, hide from him, be away from him. The gospel invites us to him because of grace. And so you can see what the gospel does with sin. It doesn't just dismiss it away that it doesn't need to be dealt with. right? And it doesn't cause me to wear it as my primary identity. The gospel in Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross, says I can see my sin, I can give it to Jesus for grace, I can receive the Holy Spirit to overcome it, but also it is not who I am. It is not my primary identity. I think a lot of moms and dads do this. This is, this is who I am now because of what I did. No, that, that is not who you are. The gospel says you are a son or daughter of God. You are forgiven and set free. Grace is yours. And that is an amazing truth. So let's stop running. Let's stop hiding. Let's stop acting like in some way we're the standard of righteousness. I mean, insert laugh here, speaking of laugh lines, that we would be the standard. We are not. Jesus is. And he's better at it. And he knows how to deal with our sin. And he knows how to offer grace. He knows how to offer power to overcome. And in him is life. So we're going to receive communion together. I'm going to pray in just a minute. We'll receive communion together and just celebrate this grace. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. And right now, as we spend the next few moments receiving communion, which is a celebration of your grace, I just want to pray right now that we would internalize this message, that any sin that's in our life would, that, that we've maybe been running from or hiding from or calling righteous when it's really sin, that anything like that in our life, that you would just kind of bring that out and we wouldn't be ashamed, but we would be motivated to give it to you on the cross so that it can be paid for and that we can receive power because you don't want us to live that way. You have a better life for us. And I just pray right now that that would happen in this room as we spend some time uh, receiving communion your body given for us, your blood poured out, that as we receive it, we would be reminded that we don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to hide anymore. We can come out of our hiding and worship you, know you, follow you, obey you, 
have a relationship with you in this life and the next. And that's what we were created for. And that is grace. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Hey, we're going to have our servers pass out communion right now and two cups stacked on top of each other. You can hold on to those cups. Uh, and uh, just think about what we talked about today about grace. And then I'll come back up and we'll all receive it together as a church family. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. And that there is this righteousness that comes apart from the law. Through faith, by grace, from you. And we're grateful because it changes everything. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Hey, really glad that you're here on this Father's Day. Um, we, uh, I preached uh, you know, slightly less here. We're, we're down about five, ten minutes early. I wanted to give you time to stay you know, so you don't have to rush out of here. Grab a root beer, grab some chips, and uh, just uh, interact with one another. And uh, to all of our dads, happy Father's Day. I hope it's a really good and blessed day. Let's go ahead and stand and uh, close with one last song. God bless you guys.